G'day mate, 40 here. So a pretty good article in the Wall Street Journal I was reading today about how Trump supporters and Trump's enemies are, are pretty much a mirror image of each other. And so I, I would vote for Trump in, in 2024. But I, you have to acknowledge, even if you're a Trump supporter, that uh, there are a lot of horrible things about this guy. All right. And it's just to state one thing, all his lies about the 2020 election, like trying to hang on to the belief that, you know, Trump really didn't lose the 2020 election, that voting machines were tempered with, that election officials were just corrupt and ballot boxes, boxes were, were stuffed. There's no evidence for this. All right. And on the other hand, Trump's opponents produced a stream of legal investigations to try to justify their belief that he engages in criminal conduct, the, the Russia investigation, tax fraud investigation, generally investigation but what it comes down to is they want to rob americans of the opportunity to vote for donald trump so the very same people who say democracy is under peril want to remove that welcome to option. tucker carlson imagine the pandemonium at soul cycle studios across the northeast this morning when tony fauci announced his retirement ugly doesn't begin to describe it picture the chaos if you can in the organic chaga aisle at whole foods in brookline Try to envision the panic and hysteria that must have broken out at espresso bars in Edgartown and Aspen and Santa Monica and Bethesda as thousands of masked ladies in Lululemon discovered all at once that the one religious leader they still revered, their own even tinier version of the Dalai Lama, had decided to retreat forever from public life. It was, ladies and gentlemen, the equivalent of a targeted nuclear device detonated over the most emotionally vulnerable elements of our most privileged population. You can picture the carnage, the wailing, the swooning, manicured hands clutched to breasts, then fumbling for Xanax in expensive handbags. Not since the orange man seized the White House in a Russian coup have more 46-year-old Cornell-educated lawyers with weak husbands wept shamelessly in public. There's not enough rosé in Napa to quell that pain. And it wasn't supposed to be this way. It never is supposed to be this way. Just a month ago, St. Tony suggested to his followers... He'd be around another two years, at least living at public expense as the highest paid federal employee till the end of Joe Biden's first, but hopefully not last term. And you know what that meant? It meant many more spreads in Teen Vogue, many more interviews on NPR, many more tips on masking. Is three enough? And of course, more vital guidance on how to celebrate the holidays. Which relatives should we ban from Thanksgiving this year? Dr. Fauci will know. Oh, but not anymore. That's all gone. He's sitting masked at Brian Stelter's house watching Chris Hayes tonight, because this morning, Tony Fauci announced his abdication. Quote, I will be leaving these positions. There was always more than one. I'll be leaving these positions in December of this year to pursue my next chapter of my career, he said. The next chapter of his career? He's only 81. Some of us had hoped he'd be around another 40 years, but he's leaving so soon, too soon. Why? What's going on here? You hate to think politics could affect Tony Fauci's judgment as a scientist. They never have before. But is it possible this thoroughly nonpartisan man of medicine has thought about what might happen in November when the Republican Congress takes over? Does he believe that could be bad news for him? Well, yes, it is possible he believes that. Because on some level, even Tony Fauci knows that Tony Fauci is, in fact, a dangerous fraud. A man who has done things that in most countries at most times in history would be understood perfectly clearly to be very serious crimes. So it's possible that Tony Fauci might want to resign before he has to explain all of that to a new Congress. He might want to get out of town now and move to, say, Cambridge, 
find a safe place to hide before the reckoning. Just a thought. Because honestly, there's a lot to answer for. In just the last two years, Fauci has recommended treatments and preventative measures for COVID that not only didn't work, but that he knew didn't work. He admitted to the New York Times that he lied about herd immunity in order to sell more vaccines, which also didn't work, which weren't even actually vaccines, but that did hurt a lot of people, tens of thousands. Then he lied about masks publicly. You should wear one as you're riding a bike. You're getting too much life-enhancing oxygen. What you really need is more carbon dioxide. Be more like a tree. That's what he was saying in public. But in private, he wrote that, quote, the typical mask you buy at a drugstore is not really effective at keeping out a virus. Oh, so he knew. As your kids were suffocating during gym, wearing a mask, Tony Fauci knew they didn't work. And then there's this, maybe his most notable crime. He didn't simply downplay and obfuscate the origins of the pandemic, apparently in conjunction with the Chinese government. No, Tony Fauci covered up evidence that he, Tony Fauci, helped create that virus in the first place. Here's Tony Fauci last July testifying under oath before the Congress. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain-of-function. So what was? Let you me take, finish. You take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans. Right. You're saying that's not gain of function. Yeah, that is correct. And and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. Oh, Doctor Fauci meets an actual doctor who's not a BS artist who asks simple questions and demands straightforward answers. Tony Fauci was lying in that clip. He knew he was lying. As The Intercept of all places recently reported, quote, scientists working under a 2014 NIH grant to the EcoHealth Alliance to study bat coronaviruses combined the genetic material from a parent coronavirus known as WIV1 with other viruses. Oh, they were manufacturing more powerful viruses. Tony Fauci oversaw that. Then The Intercept spoke to several virologists and found that, quote, seven said that the work appears to meet NIH's criteria for gain-of-function research. Okay, gain-of-function research. That was going on. Not allowed in this country, so they were offshoring it in their various labs, including one owned by the Chinese government. A lot of bio labs in Ukraine. What was going on there? Oh, shut up, don't ask. You're working for Putin. Really? Well, at some point, somebody is going to ignore the threats and just go ahead and ask the question. Why do we have all these biolabs in Ukraine of all places? It's not like Ukraine is a hotbed of pharmaceutical research. What is that? We don't know, but at some point people are gonna find out. Now The Intercept spoke to a virologist called Vincent Ranciniello, he's a professor of microbiology and immunology at Columbia. Quote, there is no question, he said, from the weight loss of the mice in the study, it's gain of function. Tony Fauci is wrong saying it's not, end quote. And of course, Fauci would have known that he was, quote, wrong. In other words, he was lying when he said it wasn't gain of function. It was. This is all becoming much clearer. The Intercept, just in case you haven't heard of it, is not a right-wing publication. It's a left-wing publication. So at some point, all of this is going to become public, and it seems to be accelerating. 
No wonder Fauci's leaving. Then late last year, NIH just admitted it. In a letter to the House Oversight Committee, an NIH official called Lawrence Tabak wrote that a, quote, limited experiment had been conducted in Wuhan in order to test if, quote, spike proteins from naturally occurring bat viruses, coronaviruses circulating in China, were capable of binding to the human ACE2 receptor in a mouse model. Frankenstein stuff. Why the hell were they doing this? Oh, and they destroyed the United States in the process. No one's apologized. No one's been charged. No one's ever really admitted it. But we know that Tony Fauci knew perfectly well this was going on because he's the one who authorized the grants. And as the pandemic spread around the world, virologists frantically told Tony Fauci in real time that gain-of-function research funded in part by the U.S. government was probably involved. In early 2020, Kristen Anderson, a virologist at the Scripps Institute in La Jolla, California, wrote this to Fauci, quote, some of the features potentially look engineered. David Baltimore, meanwhile, announced he had found the, quote, smoking gun for the origin of the virus, what he called a powerful challenge to the idea of a natural origin for SARS-2. Tony Fauci saw that assessment also, right at the very beginning. So in response, Fauci called an urgent meeting and told his deputies to read up on gain-of-function research, a paper authored by a scientist conducting bat experiments in Wuhan at the Chinese military lab there. So he knew at the very beginning, and a lot of people knew, and they all lied to us, and they're still lying to us, and not one person has been held accountable. But in public, Fauci refused to talk about gain-of-function research. Okay, this is just inflammatory crap. Uh, Tony Fauci is a flawed human being who's made a lot of mistakes, and wow, the, the private Tony Fauci is different from the public Tony Fauci, as opposed to the private Tucker Carlson is just identical to the public Tucker Carlson? Private and public personas are always different. That, that doesn't make Tony Fauci a bad guy. Tony Fauci made a lot of mistakes, and he got some things right as well. What type of person do you think successfully runs a federal government bureaucracy in the United States? Do you think it's someone who's just 100% dedicated to the truth and uh, willing to give up his career, give up you know, all, all prestige at, at, at any time? All right, so that he can just uh, pursue the truth? No, obviously that type of person does not succeed in running some big federal government bureaucracy. But if it wasn't Tony Fauci running the bureaucracy, uh, someone else would be another bureaucratic player. All right, this is just the nature of bureaucracy. Do you, do you really think that, uh, that you know, there would be some creature of light and, and love and goodness and truth-seeking who could have done Tony Fauci's role, and as a result, we wouldn't have been so hampered and restricted and inconvenienced and, and bothered and strangled by all the coronavirus restrictions over the past three years. No, no matter who you had in that position, they would have said about 90% the same things that Tony Fauci said and did. All right, so... When Tony Fauci says he speaks for science, he does speak for the scientific consensus, I don't know, about 90% of the time. doesn't mean the scientific consensus is right. Scientific consensus is often changing. But uh, he does tend to speak for the scientific consensus. So it's obviously, I, I'm not an expert on COVID, the origins of COVID, uh, the most effective treatments for, for COVID, Right, I'm just a bloke, but what I can 
how to sort out our some of the the stupid arguments, right? So let's check our epistemics. All right, let's check my epistemics. Let's let's check your epistemics. Let's go to the chat. Luke's still sounding congested. Yeah. Everyone getting this summer cold. I still got it 10 days later. All right. Uh, oh, bloody hell. Let's let's go look at uh, this website. I enjoy Respectful Insolence. And it's by a surgeon, David Gorski. And he notes that ever since we found out about SARS-CoV-2, since it was first identified as a mysterious severe pneumonia coming out of Wuhan, China, two and a half years ago, as the COVID-19 pandemic, there, of course, been intense curiosity about the origins of the virus. Well, just like other viruses, right, it's not so easy to track down the origins. Now, the dominant scientific uh, consensus has been that it had a zoonotic origin, meaning it jumped from animals to humans. Now, less plausible according to the dominant scientific perspective, although possible was the lab leak hypothesis that uh, this coronavirus was cooked up in a laboratory and then escaped either through incompetence or malfeasance. Right, this is the lab leak hypothesis. So obviously the lab leak hypothesis would be much more exciting. It would be much more emotionally rewarding to have specific people to blame. And there are arguments for the lab leak hypothesis. I've certainly talked about it quite a bit on the show. It still looks like the dominant perspective among scientists who study this is that the lab leak hypothesis is not the most likely. Now, there are new papers that have just come out in the past month making the case for a, a zoonotic, the origin, the, the animal origin of COVID. And uh, a lot of uh, scientists are taking these papers seriously. Now, what, what's interesting to me in particular is how do people react to arguments, right? So let's just look at how people react to various uh, propositions. So dominant position came from animals, minority position, lab leak. All right. So what type of people most respond to the lab leak hypothesis? Generally speaking, people who are dissidents. What type of people generally sign on with the dominant hypothesis? Those who believe in the elites, who are happy to accept that uh, what the, the dominant scientific paradigm says, that that's the one that's most likely to be true. Now, by May 2021, the lab leak hypothesis had all the hallmarks of a conspiracy theory, writes uh, Dr. Gorski here. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but it does have that those hallmarks, right? There's a cover-up narrative in which China and powerful forces in the U.S., like Tony Fauci, are suppressing all mention of lab leak as a conspiracy theory. You get attacks on funding sources, investigators doing research on coronaviruses. And you, you get all these people like uh, Nicholas Wade and Richard Mueller saying that any observed oddity in the nucleotide sequence of the virus is just clear-cut evidence of lab manipulation by scientists doing gain-of-function research, which apparently went all wrong. Now, the Wuhan Institute of Biology is not far from the wet markets, which have been first identified as the most likely sources of the outbreak. Right, so lab leak 
proponents are fond of conspiratorial thinking, all right? They're fond of things like attribution errors. So what is the attribution error, you may ask, all right? That's when you tend to overemphasize, say, personality-based explanations for behaviors observed in others while underemphasizing situational explanations. So people have a cognitive bias to assume that a person's actions depends on what kind of person that person is rather than on the social environmental forces that influence the person. So the fundamental attribution error. What exactly is the fundamental attribution error and why is it so important? Let's look at an example. Say your friend Bob takes you to a party and at that party he introduces you to his other friend Eric. Eric is particularly curt and seems uninterested in meeting you. He comes off as unfriendly. Chances are your first reaction is to assume Eric is just an unfriendly person. A real jerk, if you will, right? Well, what if Eric is just having a really tough day? Maybe he broke up with his girlfriend. Or maybe someone close to him has passed away. Then you may think Eric's behavior is excusable because, well, he's just having a bad day. I guess Eric isn't that bad a guy, huh? Well, this mix-up in judgment is a perfect example of the fundamental attribution error. In other words... People tend to place more emphasis on internal explanations rather than considering the circumstances. So next time you meet someone at a party, don't be so quick to judge them. Right. So the situation often has far more of, a, of an effect on people's behavior than their personality or moral character. So in certain situations, I tend to become hostile, angry, rude, brusque. Right? Other situations, I tend to be kind and compassionate and loving. And so the situation often determines how we behave. All right, back.
Oh, about 50 people died at uh, this hospital. And the moral conscience of the show is this black doctor. And he looks at what's going on there. He says, this is something that happens in a third world country, not here. Well, I'm just like racking my brains. This is why I've been pulling all my hair out. I'm just trying to think, like, what are the similarities between New Orleans and a third world country? And I just can't think of similarities, but I know that if I just pull out enough hair, I'll eventually get it. So this uh, black talk doctor talks about they're shooting us, meaning whites are shooting blacks. All right. And he says that uh, bad people, evil entities have taken over, meaning white people arming themselves. All right. So in reality, many of the people left in, in New Orleans behaved in absolutely pathetic fashion. Right. They weren't like people in Anchorage, Alaska after the 1964 earthquake, when they're all getting together to help each other. They weren't people in San Diego County when there were bad fires there a few years ago where they got together and helped each other. But instead, in New Orleans, looting took over, raping took over, murder took over. People couldn't even go rescue at night because there were snipers out there shooting people. Right? So, yeah, it was a third world space in part in New Orleans because you had a lot of people behaving like... uh, third world thugs and new orleans has this ethos of let the good times roll well not such a great ethos for dealing with a natural disaster like hurricane katrina not such a great ethos for those who have to clean up after the party so just such a dramatic difference between what happened say at hurricane katrina as opposed to what happens in japan right when there's a major earthquake in japan or a major earthquake in Anchorage, Alaska in 1964, or major fires in San Diego, right? decent people get together and help each other. Indecent people start raping, you know, raping, murdering, looting, all sorts of horrible behavior. So I, I just read this book called This is Chance, The Shaking of an All-American City, a, a voice that held it together. Right, it's a book about the 1964 Anchorage earthquake, which uh, measured uh, 9.2 on the Richter scale. It's the the biggest earthquake uh, ever measured bar one uh, 9.4 earthquake in Chile. So, so at the time of the 1964 Anchorage earthquake. They were staging a play, a production of Our Town, right? Uh, A famous play. And this play is all about people saying, remember us, recognize us. The play is about one community's simple insistence that that it matters. And its insistence is made urgent by suspicion that ultimately it might not matter. So the overwhelming disaster everyone in Our Town is confronting is irrelevance. It's a creeping awareness that no matter how secure and central each of us feels within the stories of our own lives, we are in reality just specks of things at the mercy of larger forces that can blot us out indifferently or by chance. So time itself is like a slow-moving natural disaster. It's imperceptibly shaking everything apart. Nothing in our world is durable or stable. Everything seems to run on chance. 
Like, how are we supposed to live on the surface of this unbearable randomness? What can we hold on to that's fixed? And what we can hold on to, in large part, are forming connections with other people. So, 1964, you have the Cold War escalating. It's less than a year since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And civil defense is increasingly desperate to fulfill its mandate of preparing Americans for nuclear war with the Soviet Union. One of the agency's insights is that the bomb that was dropped on the United States wouldn't just cause physical destruction, but pandemonium, mass hysteria. So the Defense Department funds a team of sociologists to parachute into disaster areas such as the 1964 Anchorage earthquake to find out what's going on. And when they do, they realize that people in many of these natural disasters band together to help each other rather than just becoming hysterical and looting, raping, and becoming selfish. Virtually none of the panic, none of the looting, none of the violence, none of the antisocial behavior that the sociologists arrived in Anchorage ready to document actually happened. So volunteers got out there and helped. Everyone was helping other people. Right? There was virtually no looting. About the only credible case of looting appears to have been perpetrated by a police officer. Instead, people got together and helped out. Everyone was helping their neighbors. That's why it's so important to have high social trust, high social cohesion, and the more you have in common with your fellow citizens, the more likely you are to help each other out. So everybody in Anchorage seemed to have done a little bit of everything for everybody. And it completely cut against the conventional wisdom's predictions of savagery and hysteria, as opposed to what happened in New Orleans during Hurricane after the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. So disasters are often occasions for profound human misery. But I remember attending a press conference when there was a whole series of outbreaks of HIV in the porn industry, and I never saw people in the porn industry so excited and it wasn't just the attention and the media that they were getting. But during a disaster, there is an instinct in people to not panic, to loot and scapegoat, or to be helpless, hysterical, and neurotic, but rather to start joining together and being pretty happy because you are getting connected with other people. Right? The more bonded, connected you are with other people, the happier you're going to get. So there are frequently therapeutic effects to disasters. We are social animals, and so we often come closer to fulfilling our basic human needs in the aftermath of disasters than at any other time. That's why many people look back on their military service as the happiest time of their life, because that's when they were most bonded with other people. So even amidst all the devastation, people seemed happy, even gleeful. The, the city was overtaken by happiness. People felt a stronger connection to one another. Do you remember after 9-11? I remember on my block, we we would have block parties where we'd get together and eat together and get to know our neighbors who we otherwise didn't really know. So in regular life, we tend to suffer alone. Most of our pain comes from our loneliness. It's exacerbated by our loneliness. So William James was in San Francisco in the aftermath of the 1906 earthquake. And he saw that people felt a much stronger connection, that they felt a kinship that tended to be lacking in ordinary life. So now in San Francisco after the earthquake, each person's private miseries were merged in the vast general sum of misery. As a result, victims didn't feel like victims. They felt empowered. He he didn't hear any complaints, right? 
he heard only cheerfulness. Now, there's often a temptation to always try to take the safest route through life, but our lives still, no matter how much effort we make to ensure safety, are going to be incredibly random and we're going to be jostled and we're going to be spun about. Nothing is fixed. The ground we stand on sometimes is moving. Right underneath us, sometimes there's only instability. Beyond us, there's only chance. So how do you survive in such a world, right? To hold on to other people. The, the, the best force for counteracting chaos is connection. If you're not connected, then you're going to want to believe that your problems are the fault of, of somebody else. And uh, you're you're going to be highly prone to conspiracy theories let's get more here from Tucker. that then the insidious nature of spread in the community would have been much more of an alarm and there would have been much much more stringent uh restrictions much more strange much, much more restrictions we're not sigmund freud but if you don't know the little sexual pleasures he said stringent restrictions you're blind to the obvious but all of it is fake, totally fake. It's been studied, researchers at Johns Hopkins admitting that lockdowns didn't actually work. They did ruin people's lives for no reason whatsoever. In late 2020, a group of epidemiologists tried to warn the public about this because they saw it coming. And they wrote something called the Great Barrington Declaration. Here's how Tony Fauci's boss, the thoroughly discredited, in fact, repulsive, Francis Collins, the guy who convinced evangelicals to all get the vaccine because it's God's will, that guy. Here's how he responded. Collins wrote to Fauci in an email, October 2020, quote, see greatbarringtondeclaration.org. This proposal seems to be getting a lot of attention, even a co-signature from Nobel Prize winner Mike Levitt at Stanford. There needs to be a quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. Wait, why? Why not assess its premises? Scientists disagree with you. Shouldn't you figure out why they disagree? No. Just gin up the lie machine, NBC News, CNN, New York Times, and crush them, shut them down, throw them off social media, get the tech oligarchs to make sure no one can hear what they're saying. That's literally what they did. That's not how scientists act. That's how dictators act. And in fact, Tony Fauci himself made the argument again today. Tony Fauci is science incarnate, said Tony Fauci, and he must never be challenged. So if they get up and criticize science, nobody's going to know what they're talking about. But if they get up and really aim their bullets at Tony Fauci, well, people could recognize there's a person there. So it's easy to criticize. But they're really criticizing science because I represent science. So if you are trying to, do, you know, get at me as a public health official and a scientist, you're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're attacking science. I'm the bad guy to an entire subset of people because I represent something that is uncomfortable for them. It's called the truth. Okay, first of all, the only people who refer to themselves in public non-ironically in the third person are Fidel Castro and mental patients. Okay, so that should have been a tip-off right there. I am science? I am the state. The state is me. Whoa, settle down, megalomania man. This is nuts. And yet it's not. It's not nuts if what uh, Anthony Fauci, generally speaking, says is representative of scientific consensus, then roughly speaking, it's not completely absurd that uh, he says he speaks for science. So I 
Sorry about uh, certain sound problems earlier. Now I, I hope you get my undiluted wisdom. So let's go back to David Gorski, the surgeon. Now it's the one of the earliest conspiracy theories about COVID-19 came in February 2020 when James Lyons Weiler claimed to have broken the coronavirus code. He claimed the novel coronavirus whose nucleotide sequence had been published a week before was actually the result of a SARS. Tried to claim that the novel coronavirus showed evidence of containing nucleotide sequences from a circular DNA construct, a plasmid, into which scientists insert genes. Right now, if true, that would have been slam dunk evidence that uh, SARS-CoV-2 had been created in a laboratory. But Weller made uh, many, many mistakes. HIV man with my sound. Not Fauci who's been damaged by this kind of behavior serially over years. It's anyone who criticized him. The Biden administration arrested one of Tony Fauci's top critics, Peter Navarro. They hauled him out of Reagan Airport in leg irons. Merrick Garland also ruined the lives of several Trump associates for the alleged crime of lying to federal officials. Recently, Biden's DOJ has been busy ridding the home of the former president for retaining classified documents, including a letter from Barack Obama. Okay. So that's how they're treated. But at the same time, people like Tony Fauci, who apparently engineered the single most devastating event in modern American. Okay, that's nonsense. Uh, Tony Fauci, did not uh, engineer this uh, devastating uh, COVID pandemic. So let's see how the, the sound works. How, how's it sound now? So March 2020, we had a direct examination of the nucleotide sequence of SARS. It led scientists to include the virus was highly unlikely to have been engineered in a laboratory. Didn't stop uh, conspiracy theories, but you got all these distorted claims about the rarity of certain virus and its furin cleavage site. So these data, so the goalposts shifted as they run headlong into disconfirming evidence. Okay, we're going to we're going to get that high quality sound that you pay the big bucks for. So the bioleak version of the conspiracy theory uh, developed into something that was harder to falsify, that the origin of SARS-CoV-2 was indeed a lab leak just of a naturally occurring coronavirus that had been collected from bats and stored for study at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, such as the bat virus RAT-G13, which was indirectly claimed to be a direct precursor to SARS-CoV-2. Then there were claims that workers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were infected with SARS-CoV-2 in November 2019, but exhaustive contact tracing failed to find these cases. Now, the lab leak hypothesis, Bruce Gorski says, is certainly possible. Lab leaks of pathogens have occurred before. None, however, have previously led to a global pandemic. What's interesting is that conspiracy theorists simply tend to assume that because lab leak is possible, that implies that lab leak is at least as likely as natural origin when the preponderance of evidence has long suggested the conclusion that a lab leak origin for this pandemic is unlikely. So, yes, are both hypotheses possible? Yes, both are possible. Are they equally likely? No. 
One hypothesis requires a colossal cover-up and the silent, unswerving, leak-proof compliance of a vast network of scientists, civilians, and government officials for over a year. The other requires biology to behave as it always has for a family of viruses that have done this before to do it again. So the natural origin spillover hypothesis is simple. It explains everything. It's scientific malpractice to pretend that one idea is equally as meritorious as the other. So the lab leak hypothesis is kind of a scientific deus ex machina, meaning God comes down. It's a narrative shortcut that points a finger at a specific set of bad actors. So lab leak requiring a colossal cover-up right, for years now. And uh, where, where does the evidence really lead us? Right, so we've got these two new studies that say that the origins of COVID most likely jumped from from people, from animals to people. And I'll link to this study in uh, in the notes for the show. It goes on and on, way beyond my level of expertise, but the live animal trade. And live animal markets are a common theme in virus spillover events. So selling live mammals is about the highest risk category for outbreaks. Now, this is not slam dunk evidence in and of itself for zoonotic transfer. But we have these two new studies that constitute powerful evidence that SARS-CoV-2 was most likely not introduced into the human population from a lab, but most likely transferred from animals to human, almost certainly in the Hunan market, from which it spread to the rest of the Wuhan province, to China, and then to the world. So doing these studies regarding lab leak now contend that lab hypothesis. So they say these two new studies don't definitively disprove lab leak, but they are extremely persuasive. So some of these scientists have changed their minds about the virus origins, so one guy was quite convinced that the lab leak hypothesis now looked at this latest data. Two scientists look at the latest data, and though they say lab leak is possible, they change their mind. They say the most likely explanation is from animals to human. So this is what true seekers do. When the evidence becomes overwhelming, if not 100% definitive, people who want truth will change their mind. Now, how are lab leak proponents reacting to this? Right, So if you're dealing with a conspiracy theorist, they're not interested in evidence. They just tend to double down. So what you'll hear is a lot of complaints about the elites who foisted this COVID pandemic on us. There's just all this money being made between the National Institutes of Health, Big Pharma, and their Chinese Communist Party buddies. One hand washes the other. Truly a clown world that we live in. So I don't believe we live in a clown world. There are elements of clown world all around us. I don't believe we live in a clown world. People who say we live in a clown world are people who, generally speaking, don't want to do the hard work of looking reality right in the face and pursuing truth wherever it leads. So on Twitter, you see these lab leak conspiracy theorists posting things like, the massive amount of media PR we're seeing supporting the two science papers shows not only how important the origin mystery is, but how expert science is in trumpeting a message like this. So it's the National Institute of Health funding studies to study the origins of SARS-CoV-2. 
That, that is suspicious. This is just despicable Fauci trying to cover his ass again. Just trying to protect funding. So, you know, apparently Tony Fauci just personally approves each and every grant based on whether it furthers his own nefarious aims. And then when those arguments fail, there's always the sure gambit. If only you are smart enough to distinguish science from spin or if you weren't paid to do the latter. So for conspiracy theorists, the only reason those accepting science that argues against their conspiratorial beliefs is that these people must be paid by the man. So you get this conspiratorial thinking that because the National Institutes of Health are funding studies, that must mean they are hopelessly biased and Fauci is trying to cover his ass. So this is a common narrative among conspiracy theories. You want to personalize decisions like Tucker Carlson was just doing by government agencies to a preferred boogeyman who can be attacked like Tony Fauci and just be unable to imagine that any government institution, any elite institution would provide research money to any group opposed to its message or fund any research whose results might not line up with the message it wants to promote. So the National Institutes of Health is a flawed funding mechanism, but its peer review process for funding grants is about as close to a true meritocracy as you'll ever find in a government agency. So you have scientists on study sections review each grant for merit based on science. Now, you've got uh, Alina Chan, who's selling a book promoting lab leak theory, right? She claims that there is ascertainment bias in the National Institutes of Health. That's bias in how cases are identified that tend to distort the results. She dismisses the author's discussion on the matter by referring to a paper by one of the main authors as evidence that there is no ascertainment bias. However, the authors tested for ascertainment bias. And will the lab leak claims ever go away? This is Susan Oliver here. Probably asking, what the heck does Susan Hello, Oliver have to say? And welcome to Back to the Science. I'm Dr. Susan Oliver. We're never sampled as they had already been removed from the market before samples could be taken. You can't find what you haven't tested. A lot of criticism of the paper comes from a scientist called Alina Chan, who is also the author of a book called Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. A key part of her criticism is she claims that the data used in the second paper suffered from ascertainment bias. Ascertainment bias basically means that the method of collecting data means that it is skewed and not representative of the population. Her argument in relation to the study is that they were only looking for cases associated with the Huanan market, so that's what they found. To support her claim, she highlights this section from the China Hu joint report, which states, an association with the Huanan market was identified amongst some of the earliest recognised cases and for a short period until mid-January 2020, exposure to the Huanan market was included in the case definition. But she completely ignores the following sentence. It rapidly became clear, however, that there were cases without a link to the Huanan market and this element of the definition was dropped a few days after being introduced. 
Most importantly, she ignores the fact that the authors of the study specifically tested the data to ensure that it didn't suffer from ascertainment bias. And she also dismisses this peer-reviewed study that provides further evidence that no ascertainment bias occurred for no other reason than it had a single author. The fact that it had four peer reviewers isn't mentioned by her. In this study, they just looked at cases that were identified before the link with the market was known. So it wasn't possible to have any ascertainment bias. And as you can see, they still cluster around the market. So it appears that there aren't really any valid criticisms to the two studies, which together provide strong evidence that SARS-CoV-2 resulted from two separate spillover events from animals at the Huanan market. Does this mean people will now change their minds based on this new evidence? Probably not. Will they change their minds if further evidence is uncovered in the future to support it? Probably not. If hey, on a happy note, I just read a really, really nice book on uh, This is Chance, The Shaking of an All-American City, the voice that uh, held it all together, uh, the 1964 Anchorage well earthquake. At the same, <laughs> at the same time. Just like From, uh, yeah, so up Nelly, the last two weeks of my life. Yeah, totally. Um, Nellie asked this is if there's something I could read to start, so I thought I would just read the first couple pages of the book because it seemed like um, that's the beginning. Uh, so this is the, the very, the very first page and a half or so. This book is called This is Chance. It was written by John Mullen, published by Random House, edited by Andy Ward. It tells the story of a single catastrophic weekend in a faraway town and of the people who lived through it. Ordinary men and women who, when the most powerful earthquake ever measured in North America struck just before sundown on Good Friday, 1964, found themselves thrown into a jumbled and ruthlessly unpredictable world they did not recognize. They would spend the next few days figuring out, together, how to make a home in it again. The name of the town is Anchorage, Alaska, a blotch of Western civilization in the middle of emptiness. In those days, the state of Alaska was still brand new and often disregarded as a kind of free-floating addendum to the rest of America. But Anchorage was Alaska's biggest and proudest city, a community whose essential spirit, one visitor wrote, reached aggressively and greedily to grasp the future, impatient with any suggestion that such things take time. It was a modern-day frontier town that imagined it was a metropolis, straining to make itself real. That determination made it difficult for those living in Anchorage to recognize how indifferently the city they were building could be knocked down. To imagine that early one Friday evening, the very ground beneath them might rear up and shake their town like a dog shaking an animal he's killed, as one man later described it. Even while the earth was moving, the ferocious strangeness of what was happening to Anchorage was hard for people to internalize or accept. Buildings keeled off their foundations, slumped in on themselves, split in half or sank. Four-foot-high ground waves rolled through the roads as though the pavement were liquid. A city of infallible right angles, buckled and bent. It wasn't as though before the quake people in Anchorage pictured these things happening and dismissed them as impossible. They just never pictured them. They couldn't. And more to the point, why would they? Like all of us, they looked around and registered what they saw as stable and permanent, a world that just was. But there are moments when the world we take for granted instantaneously changes. 
when reality is abruptly upended and the unimaginable overwhelms real life. Okay, that's from a new book, well, came out in 2021, I believe. This is Chance, about this uh, female radio news reporter who narrated the 1964 Anchorage earthquake. A question from the chat. Luke, thoughts on the murder of Daria Platonova, the daughter of the Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin. Well, when you when you propose that uh, members of an outgroup aren't really human and uh, that, that Russia should absolutely crush them, it's not surprising that there might be blowback for, for that. And so when you go to war, uh, you never know all, all the consequences, right? You can have a plan, but once you get punched in the face, you're going to have to adapt your plan. So Russia's gone to war. There are going to be all sorts of negative consequences for, for people. So it would surprise me if this was some uh, internal Russian fight, if this was you know, people who wanted to you know, get at Putin. I have no idea, just an, an open mind. But she and her husband, uh, she and her father certainly said a lot of uh, provocative things that would you know, attract a, a, a vitriolic response. So our words ha have an impact and we help to create the reality that unfolds around us. Looking at the chat, is this woman an expert or practitioner of bio-warfare? Don't know. They have security practitioners and experts, lots of Mossad, IDF, literally every branch you can name. Note to streamers, if you have a big snoz, do not wear a stocking cap. They're saying her killers were a daughter and mother team connected to the Azov Battalion. Okay, interesting. Wow, so much to talk about. But uh, let's let's go back to the, the live leak hypothesis. So this is... <laughs> you're probably wondering, you know, what, did, what did Brett Weinstein and... Heather Heyer have to say about this. Whenever there's a, a question of science, I don't know about you, but I always want to know what uh, Heather and Brett have to say. So let's let's get a little something here from Heather Heyer, Brett Weinstein. Um, here's a piece of information I suspect you don't know. Uh oh. You remember Joe Biden? Yeah. Yeah. Joe oh, Biden. He's got, he tested positive again, didn't he? Tested positive again. He had. What, what is was he? Oh, he he was on Paxlovid, wasn't he? Well, but here's the question. Was he? I think so, but here's the question. Oy. I think that, look, I don't know. I don't trust anything that comes out of this White House. Yeah, or the tests. Like, even if they're being totally straight with us, the tests are crap, but. Right. Yeah. I don't know that they wouldn't oh, my God. have reason to pretend, but. Let's just say that this is for real, and maybe it is just for real. Maybe they're for once telling it to us straight. He got COVID, he tested negative, and he's now tested positive again. Um, and well, but that, I mean, that matches the thing that happens with, with Paxlovid, the right. antivirals, yeah. But these people are dumb enough to give the president Paxlovid? Yeah. They can get him whatever they want. And these people, believe me, they they lie like, like they're drinking water. They could give him... <laughs> ivermectin hydroxychloroquine they could just tell him tell us 
you know, that, that they're giving him, you know, all of the latest fancy stuff from, yeah. from Pfizer and Merck and everybody be happy. But yeah, so this is uh, Brett and Heather trying to puzzle out why Biden's team seems to have opted to give him Paxlovid instead of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And uh, Bad Stats on Twitter says, I'm looking forward to what promises to be a highly nuanced and non-conspiratorial analysis of the recent papers finding lab leak to be increasingly I mean, impossible. I guess the, the other thing, that is, they're now they, the they, the Christian Anderson and company, they are making another bid for, um, this is definitely zoonotic. This definitely came <laughs> from the market in Wuhan. And we're not racist, but this is definitely about what those people eat. And, you know, not about the fact that we created this damn thing in a lab and now the entire population of the entire planet is going to be living with it forever. Yeah. Now, uh, we, we will return to that topic very soon. Okay. So that's evolutionary biologist Heather Hying on the podcast she does with the husband biologist Brett Weinstein, claiming it's a conspiracy to definitely show that it was those people who caused the pandemic, not a lab leak. So she calls claims of the pandemic started at the Hudan market racist, ignoring the anti-Chinese racism behind lab leak. I like how she says that the scientists were racist for coming to the conclusion that it came from an animal market. I guess she was trying to squeeze in a talking point about how they would call other people racist, saying the virus came from wet market, but she she didn't think it through and accidentally just became an anti-racist fanatic. So Weinstein promises to discuss these studies more in the future, given his previous promotion of ivermectin as a cure-all for COVID-19 based on misunderstood meta-analyses. I'm sure his discussions will be as nuanced as his wife's ascribing racism to the investigators. Then there's the appeal to personal incredulity. So Professor Ebright is a chemist who fancies himself an epidemiologist, a molecular biologist, and a virologist. He's also one of the most vocal lab leak conspiracy theorists. Barring dispositive evidence, that means dispositive means it dispose. It is, it, it dominates, it decides. Dispositive means deciding evidence of zoonotic meaning animal origin. Won't the conclusion of historians in 20 years be lab leak as a much more credible hypothesis? And here's uh, John Stewart going off the rails. I think we owe a great debt of gratitude to science. Science has in many ways helped ease uh, the suffering of this pandemic. Uh, which was more than likely caused by science. <laughs> so, and that's kind of... All of it. No, 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 no. Now, listen, listen. What do you mean by do you mean like there's, 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 there's a chance that this is created in a lab as an investigation? A chance? Oh, I, 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 oh I, my God. I'd love to hear it. There's a novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know what we could ask? The Wuhan Novel Respiratory Coronavirus Lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. That's just, that's just a little too weird, don't you think? And then I have some scientists, they're like, how did this... So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan Respiratory Coronavirus Lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed the turtle. And you're like, no. I, you, you, the name of your lab, and you look at the name. Look at the name. Can I, let me see your business card. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the 
coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have corona. Like, come on. Okay, okay. What about this? What about this? Wait a second. Oh my God. Oh my God. There's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or it's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be. Okay. So John Stewart should be ashamed of himself, says the surgeon Brian Gorski. His lovely conspiracy munging sounded indistinguishable from the conspiracy nuts that used to mock so effectively when he hosted The Daily Show. So just because you personally find it difficult to believe that zoonosis, meaning from animals, is the more likely explanation for SARS, does not mean that lab leak is the more viable hypothesis. Now another favorite conspiracist narrative is that the wording of the conclusions of the science paper is less definitive than it was in the pre-printed versions published in February. Specifically, they've honed in on this one sentence, in particular this one word, dispositive. So apparently adding qualifications of one's findings after peer review is just slam-dunk evidence to conspiracy theorists that the whole paper is bogus. Apparently the authors were spanked hard. Well, they couldn't have been spanked that hard given that there were few changes made from the preprint to the final manuscript other than this and a better discussion of the study's limitations. And conspiracy theories also focused on a single word that was eliminated between the preprint and the final publication. Dispositive evidence appears not to have survived peer review. Wow. They don't say dispositive anymore. So Labley conspiracy theorists seem to be hung up on how the word dispositive, which was used in the preprints to describe this evidence, but was removed from the final versions of the studies as published in Science Magazine. Now, it was a mistake on the part of the authors to use a word like that, meaning given that dispositive is a legal term, not a scientific one, meaning something that resolves a legal issue, claim, or controversy. But science deniers love to substitute legal reasoning for scientific reasoning. Favorite example is the one false in one thing, false in all. So cranks love to imagine that interrogating science is like interrogating a witness where this legal principle allows the jury to judge that if they're false in one thing, then they're going to be false in everything. Well, science doesn't work like that. The path to a scientific consensus is never straight. There's almost always something false to find if you look hard enough. So the turning down of language in the conclusions and discussion sections of a scientific paper is a feature, not a bug, of peer review. It almost always ends up happening after the first round of peer review as the authors revise a manuscript to resubmit. Now, peer review is not magical. What it does mean is that the scientists examined the submitted manuscript and its data and its supplementary data and their figures and decided that the data did support the hypothesis being tested, was therefore worthy of publication in the journal. So the conspiratorial thinking is, oh, this is all a cover-up by Anthony Fauci and the National Institutes of Health and Big Pharma. They go anomaly hunting, which minor issues with the papers are portrayed as fatal flaws. You get arguments based on personal incredulity of the results. You get the cherry-picking of opposing studies, and you get the failure 
to consider the t- totality of the evidence and focus on bits of evidence that appear to support your view. So science is a process and definitive, dispositive scientific conclusions rarely flow from a single study. Now, remember the remember the drunk driving campaign that uh, you know friends don't let friends drink and drive, and so uh, now I'm having many friends saying, "Oh, friends, friends don't let friends get boosted," and uh, it th- doesn't seem to really carry over. So, this idea that friends don't let friends drink or drive is an incentive for people to to intervene more in, in the lives of others. So you can be too passive with, with regard to your friends, particularly if they're you know, drinking and driving, right? That's, that's something where you, if you can possibly have an effect, you should definitely speak up and having it have an effect. But just because one has really strong feelings about uh, boosting uh, doesn't mean that... Uh, that there's substantial evidence uh, behind you. Like if you have a strong, strong belief that uh, getting, you know, coronavirus uh, booster booster shots is a bad idea, then you should be able to point to some, you know, powerful study that is footnoted, and you can look at the footnotes. But uh, people rarely seem to make that argument. Instead, it's like, oh, I feel really strongly that that friends don't let friends get boosted. Like uh, a friend getting boosted with a, with a COVID shot, that's just like, you know, a friend taking illicit drugs. And w- what do you say to that? There's just no coherence behind that. Like what what uh, substantial paper or book would, would argue f- for that case? I mean, Tucker Carlson has just presented such crap on on his show. and And then people hear, oh, The Lancet, it is quoted like is the Lancet is the Lancet uh, powerful enough? But it's it's invariably some distortion of what's going on in the Lancet, right? So you get this claim: Lancet study shows that vaccinated people have lower immune function than unvaccinated people, and that COVID vaccines suppress the immune system. Absolute misrepresentation, right? The, the Lancet study cited on the Tucker Carlson show examined how COVID nineteen vaccine effectiveness wanes over time. Right? The study did no examination of immunity to infectious diseases in general, did not find anything about COVID-19 vaccines weakening the immune system. So this Tucker Carlson segment a few weeks ago, you know, provides absolutely no evidence that COVID-19 vaccines weaken the immune system. So July 21, right? Fox News host Tucker Carlson saying, oh, you know, it looks like COVID vaccines suppress the immune system and he, and he cites, you know, these these various articles, and uh, it's just nonsense, right? I mean, it just people with an agenda will distort anything they can to support their agenda, and that's that's what this is this is all about is trying to distort the evidence. I'll put a link here to an examination of that. Uh, nonsensical Tucker Carlson segment. All right. This is Chad's terrific book about the 1964 Anchorage earthquake. And think about the very different way that people in Anchorage in 1964 rallied around to help each other compared to many of the people in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. We don't walk around thinking about that instability, but we know it's always there. At random and without warning, 
a kind of terrible magic can switch on and scramble our lives. As Life Magazine would put it afterward, struggling to explain the hidden volatility that caused the quake, somewhere the earth is quivering all the time. <laughs> Did you know how prescient that would be? Like that. Uh, no, that of course in not. In one I mean, of these moments, I mean, it's. Yeah, that's the weird thing. Like I remember writing that and being like, um, like definitely thinking it's it's the idea that there are disruptions that feel, you know, earth shaking for lack of a better word. Like that idea is is timely in the sense of like maybe climate change. Mm. Um, you know, just you see these or experience these unimaginable disasters. But I, I do remember writing that section, like working really hard and feeling like this is something I need to explain really well <laughs> so that people will believe me that this is a phenomenon that happens in life. And uh, I guess I, I work really hard for nothing because it doesn't seem like it needs much explanation <laughs> right now. What? Take me, I want to like, I obviously want to talk about Corona because it's all any of us are thinking about and, and Corona in this book, but take me to, take me to the start. Take me to when you thought of writing this and how you found her. And, um, so this is Nelly Bowles and, uh, she writes, uh, pretty, pretty powerfully from the left, but, uh, thoughtfully she writes for the Atlantic and she, she also writes for, What's the substack by that woman who resigned from the from the New York Times? Right. Uh, okay. Barry Weiss. Okay, she also writes for, for Barry Weiss's substack. But uh Nellie Bowles, definitely worth worth a read. And sort of take me to where where you began and you're you're a character you you as a character emerged to describe this in within the book but tell us about this started uh this is chance about the 1964 anchorage earthquake all right uh the title topic for today's show is an excellent essay in the wall street journal Trump supporters and detractors are mirror images the Mar-a-Lago search reveals both camps are loath to take responsibility for the choices they made. Right. So Donald Trump did a lot of stupid things. There's a lot of things about Donald Trump that are, you know, cringeworthy and repellent. And also his enemies who've gone over the top to try to destroy him, much of their behavior is also repellent. And so these two extremes, right, are kind of a disturbing and sad mirror image of each other by Catherine C. Epstein. August 21, 2022, 12.21 p.m. Eastern Time. Reactions to the Federal Bureau of Investigation search of Mar-a-Lago revealed a symmetry between Donald Trump's loudest supporters and his loudest detractors that both sides wish to ignore, the desire to avoid acknowledging their unpopularity and taking responsibility for their choices. And uh, Elliot Blatt says, Luke, do you believe that your multiple vaccinations enhanced your immune system? I believe that they enhanced my response to COVID, particularly in the immediate weeks after. But as a pretty healthy 56-year-old, I, I don't think I'm at, at great risk of uh, dying from, from COVID. And uh, eating meat would help Ford's immune system more than any booster, says Glib Medley, but he does what he can with the toolkit that he holds. Robert says, I've never watched the Tucker Carlson show. I've never watched any single news show on the Fox 
network are they any good well it's time and place i mean tucker will say things about important issues that no other pundit on you know mainstream media will say so tucker does really good work pointing out problems with our growing crime rate problems with all the immigration pouring into our country so he is a a brave dissident voice out there who sometimes says important things but he's not going to say anything that you couldn't read in uh, on a Steve Saylor blog. Mr. Trump's supporters have offered a stream of theories to justify their belief that he didn't lose the 2020 election. Voting machines were tampered with. Election officials were corrupt. Ballot boxes were stuffed, etc. On the other hand, Mr. Trump's opponents have pursued a stream of legal investigations to justify their belief that he engaged in criminal conduct, the Russia investigation, the tax fraud investigation, the January 6th investigation, etc. Mr. Trump's most fervent supporters and opponents focus on asking whether the stolen election theories and legal investigations are empirically accurate. It's easy to get sucked into trying to answer that question, as most commentary has done, and forget to ask other important ones. Why, for example, might Trump's supporters and opponents focus on that particular inquiry, and why might they not want others to undertake additional inquiries? In the language of cultural history, what work does their preferred framing of the question do for them? The answer seems to be that it enables them to avoid searching their own consciences. By blaming others, they don't have to blame themselves. By explaining events in terms of other people's choices, they don't have to take responsibility for their own. For Trump supporters, the stolen election theory enables them to avoid confronting the reality that a large majority of the country dislikes the guy they like and to avoid asking whether there might not be some empirically well-founded reasons to dislike him. Right, so the world is far more confusing and complex than we can possibly make fully coherent all right at best we're just going to see shadows shadows on the cave which is why i think it's it's a sad thing if you fall out with friends over over politics or over vaccinations or any other issue in which we are only capable of grasping you know a small amount of of the issue and so many people have fallen out over Donald Trump. So I live in Los Angeles, and when when I talk about Trump with with a mixed audience, all right, you know, with with people who hate Trump, I try to frame it in humorous terms so that uh, people can enjoy the joke, and we don't have to get so so deadly serious. And uh, getting back to this idea, you know, friends don't let friends subscribe to the New York Times, or friends don't let friends drink and drive, or friends don't let friends do X Y Z. Right, this only works if your friend is willing to go along with your coercion. If you are appealing to the better angels of their nature and they realize that you're right and that you're just weak and you really would be better off listening to them. So if you have that degree of connection with other people and you're willing to recognize that sometimes they're right and you're willing to surrender to that, then this whole idea of friends don't let friends do X, Y, Z, that works. But, but it only works if you have a pretty strong connection. In the final analysis, what your friends choose to do is up to them. And if you overstep and you try to bully them, you will unnecessarily damage and possibly end friendships. All right? It's a pure delusion that you can prevent other people from doing what they want to do. You can influence others, but you can't wield dispositive power over them. Right? Collective responsibility is powerful if everyone's buying into it. But if everyone's not buying into it, then it doesn't work. If your friend insists on driving drunk and won't listen to you, do you then call the cops? I think that's definitely an option. But there are no parallels here with subscribing to the New York Times or getting a COVID booster shot. 
you have to have relationships to have influence over people, right? The stronger your relationship, obviously, the more uh, pull you will have, but you still don't get to run other people's lives. So I was just reading an article in the New York Times that uh, said that, that mental illness, right, is not, it's not the, the primary cause of mass shootings. What are the real warning signs of a mass shooting? While some mass shootings are committed by people with diagnosed mental illnesses, a life crisis is a better predictor of violence. Researchers say, experts say. Now, as there are no objective tests for almost any mental illness, I mean, we're not dealing with, uh, you know, clearly empirical material here. But it was the last paragraph of this story that really grabbed me. So a researcher interviewed many perpetrators of mass shootings and would ask, is there anything that could have stopped you? And they would always tell us yes. And I think one of them said, probably anyone could have stopped me, but there was just no one. So that, that's something I notice about people doing horrible things like uh, mass shootings is they tend not to have strong connections with other people. Is what I notice about people in the pornography industry is that you had to have only weak ties with others or no ties with others, no feeling that you might shame or embarrass your family, friends, social circle, religion, ethnic group, profession, educational institution, right? As being that distracted and that distance from other people enables you to do horrible things. So you definitely want to have some connections with others and you want to use good... Uh, good choices with, with who you, you get connected with. But in the final analysis, we don't get to run other people's lives. Right? I'm never going to get into the sort of collective relationship where I give other people veto power over what I read or whether or not I get a particular medication or vaccines, you know, booster shot. Right? Someone's feelings are never going to shift my views on a cognitive issue. And uh, one other side note, I was looking at a New York Times article that uh, some people who quit their jobs during the Great Resignation now face financial challenges. Who would have thought? Who would have thought quitting your job might lead to financial challenges? Most people are better suited for being an employee, right? Most people are not suited to being entrepreneurs. Most people are not better off, you know, just bludging off the, the federal government. So, yeah, you're very likely to run into financial issues if you quit your job and don't take another one. And then I see Andrew Tate has been banned all through social media. And for me, this is the same as with uh, Alex Jones. I, I don't care if Andrew Tate is, is banned. So I know he's a Trump supporter. I know he probably says some you know, tough truths, but he's overall such a, a repellent individual that as with an Alex Jones, I just don't care. I don't think it's any loss. You know, Jared Taylor took uh, considerable efforts to uh, say things in, in a pro-social, socially acceptable way, way that, you know, a wide variety of people could hear him. Andrew Tate has gone out of his way to be repellent and, and offensive along with much of his behavior. So I'm not, I'm not mourning the loss of Andrew Tate on social media. Right. Here's a book on the 1964 Anchorage. Yeah. So, um, well, it all began about, <laughs> I mean, the, the long version of the story, which I'll try to tell quickly is that, uh, like 
13 for no 18 years ago or so i was camping with a friend in uh, crescent city california which is up at the oregon border and um we were uh we were camping but you know we were we're soft so we went and had a meal at a diner and uh and there were all these photos around the diner of these, like just the obliterated town, like this historical photos of just like the town in shattered, being shattered. And a uh, question, what does 40 think of work from home? Are most people not suited to it because they need the office time to feel connected. I think that if you need the office to feel connected to other people, that's a symptom of a much deeper problem. So I think most people are better off if, they can indeed work from home. If they then feel a tremendous lack of connection from, from being in the office, that's, that's a reflection of a much deeper issue. You should not be primarily getting your needs for human connection from the workplace. It's a lovely supplement. And I admit, I've often used the workplace to meet my social needs. And then when I'm done with work, I, I just go home and happy to isolate and, and do, do solo adventures. But if, if you feel this, this deep sense of loneliness and, and this burning desire for human connection from working from home, this is a symptom of a much deeper problem in your life that was just getting ameliorated by going into the office. But that's not real human connection, right? That's a simulacre of human connection. There may be elements of human connection. There may be... You know, occasionally you might get to work with people who become friends, but generally speaking, when you when you leave a job, you don't maintain relations with the people who you used to work there. So I think often people get their their crutches broken, and then they think, ah, oh, the problem is my bloody crutch is broken. But the real problem is why aren't you walking? Why aren't you a normal human being who gets your primary human connection needs met outside of the workplace, right? If you're relying on work to primarily meet your human connection needs, that's a really big problem. It's like if you're depending upon your computer and your high-speed internet to fill your life after work, and then the, the computer goes down and you feel this you know, great you know, aching a gap in your soul, which I did when, when that happened to me about six years ago. That's just a symptom of a much deeper problem of a lack of human connection. Now, I had to ship my computer away to Atlanta, and I started going to 12-step meetings once again in the evenings. But I think a lot of us have like these coping mechanisms, all right? And, and when we lose the coping mechanism, we are confronted with the bleak nature of our reality. So, for example, masturbation, I'm sure as a coping mechanism, it, it was for me, all right? It would be the most, frequently it was the most pleasurable 15 minutes of my day. If masturbation is the most pleasurable 15 minutes of your day, that's a symptom of a much greater problem. So if you're using sex, love, pornography, masturbation, romantic intrigue to try to fill a hole in your soul, to you know, keep yourself a functional human being who has, has at least moments where you feel alive and you feel human and you feel excited. And I remember when I'd, I'd look at porn, uh, the, the colors would be brighter. Life would be more exciting. I'd feel more connected. I'd feel more alive. I, I, would, I would get to, you know, work out my psychological angst with women and I'd get to triumph in, in the stories that I'd tell myself while I was viewing this material. So this was a coping mechanism that wasn't really serving me. So 
but for other people, it's alcohol, right? Life is unbearable without alcohol. When they drink, they are able to feel more comfortable with themselves and to get along better with other people. And so for them, alcohol is not the problem, it's the solution. But these coping mechanisms, such as using work to fill a hole in your soul or using porn to fill a hole in your soul or using alcohol to fill a hole in your soul or using live streaming to fill a hole in your soul or using sports to fill a hole in your soul or using religion to fill a hole in your soul or using volunteering to fill fill a hole in your soul using extreme sports to fill a hole in your soul using exercise to fill a hole in your soul all these coping mechanisms right they're distracting you from the really hard work of confronting the reality of your life i mean this is this is my experience and so that's why getting sick was such a powerful important experience for me because it robbed me of of all my illusions right that's how i experience illness it just all my illusions just get ripped away i can no longer lose myself in abstract thinking or in reading books or in preparing for for a live stream or, or making money i'm just thrown back on my own resources i get to see my life in you know all its bleakness i i get to see you know my my deepest pains and my deepest frustrations and my deepest you know unmet needs i I get to just look at them and that's what happens when you you abandon the coping mechanisms right you you get thrown back into a, a bleak state where you get to confront you know face to face your your demons your unhappiness the the hole in your soul and it's so tempting to run from that back to the coping mechanisms but if you can sit there recognize that you have have a problem so for me i've habitually had a problem not getting along very well with other people uh isolating a lot more than is good for me uh excessive attention seeking behavior would diminish my abilities to have real connection with other people and so i was trying to substitute attention for connection uh, in my sex and love life, I would tend to pursue intensity rather than connection. I would uh, basically waste my life in delusions of grandeur that I was some really important blogger or really important live streamer or you know really important intellectual that you know I had all these important insights, and I, I would just devote myself to say my online content production because I thought what I was doing was so important. But what I was doing was I was trying to fill the hole in my soul by getting, you know, applause for a good blog post or a good live stream and, and try to make myself feel like a, an important human being or a decent human being or just a worthy human being or someone who is not utterly and totally insignificant. And so I just kept trying to you know, push things into that hole in my soul. And I had to... You know, do the equivalent of a dopamine fast. You know, quit the the slutting around, quit the porn, quit the masturbation, you know, quit the you know, massive lusting and fantasizing and euphoric recall, you know, quit the acting out for attention, just go on, on a dopamine fast, confront, confront the, the bleakness of my life, come to terms with the enormous damage that my emotional addictions or compulsions that had had caused me you know recognize that i was leading a life that didn't work recognize that my own approach to life was not getting it done uh, recognize that i probably need to open myself up to other ways of doing things 
become willing to get a guide or, or a sponsor or a community or a group or, or, or new friends to, to point me in new directions and, and be willing to, yeah, let go of my habits and uh, start trying some new things. And, uh, it was, there was a tsunami that hit Crescent city in 1964 and this waitress must've seen us, um, looking at these pictures and she kind of slid this, um, scrapbook across the table to us without a word. You just kind of walked by and slid this old leather book to us. And, uh, it was this oral, like the scrapbook of people typing or handwriting accounts of the tsunami. And there was just something so moving about the idea that this little tiny community that had such faith in itself was suddenly just destroyed. And I thought, oh, that might be something to write about one day. And um, it took me about 12 or 13 years to Google it. And uh, <laughs> so one time I was, like sitting in my kitchen table. That's a features couch. writer. Yeah, right. Like I, I 12 just, years was, later, I was just sitting around thinking. Yeah, thinking like, how am I going to get paid for something? You know, like I'm out of idea. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I just Googled it. I never like thought like, why was there a tsunami there? And it turns out this tsunami was one of many tsunamis that was triggered by this earthquake in Alaska. And it was very quickly. Yeah. I love, love earthquakes. They're absolutely fascinating. All right. Uh, interesting story here in the Washington post, a popular award winking award winning TV anchor is fired. Was it the hair? Okay. Washington post. Right. This news story was written by Claire Parker. A popular, award-winning TV news anchor is fired. Was it the hair? For years, until her unceremonious firing this week, Lisa Laflamme was a fixture in living rooms across Canada. The abrupt dismissal of one of the country's most prominent television journalists, she has led Canada's most-watched nightly newscast since 2011, and this year won the Canadian Screen Award for Best National News Anchor has drawn both a backlash and a national conversation about sexism and age discrimination in the media. Laflamme, who covered the biggest stories of her time, including elections, wars and natural disasters, posted a video to Twitter Monday announcing that she had been informed in late June that her career with CTV News was over after parent company Bell Media decided to end her contract. She had worked for the network for 35 years and... So I just find this story hilarious. Like, does anyone really care if your TV newsreader has won awards? Nobody cares. I remember a friend was starting a blog and he insists in putting award-winning you know, to, to describe himself. And you see this with all sorts of people online. It's so important to them to let you know that they, they won an award. All right. You winning awards means, means nothing for whether or not someone wants to tune into you. Also, reading the news is not a terribly difficult job. There are thousands of people who could do approximately as well as she could the job of reading the news on the telly. Also, because she's in her 50s, she's probably two, three, four times as expensive as younger people who could do the job just as well. But what, what really gets me in this story is the tremendous outburst of, of support from women who want to just give up. On, on trying to look attractive, all right? They they don't want to color their hair anymore. They don't want to put effort into looking attractive. So they want to you know rally around this woman because she showed the way that you know they should be able to just let themselves go. And and they are tired of uh, trying to put in some effort. Well, you don't think that men ever get tired of putting in the effort to go to a job that they don't like? Had just under two years left on her contract, according to the Globe and Mail. 
I was blindsided and am still shocked and saddened by Bell Media's decision, Lafemme said, adding that she had been asked to keep her firing confidential for weeks. At 58, I still thought I'd have a lot more time to tell more of the stories that impact our daily lives, she told followers. While it is crushing to be leaving CTV National News in a manner that is not my choice, please know reporting to you has truly been the greatest honor of my life and I thank you for always being there. She wasn't doing a lot of reporting. She was reading other people's reporting. Come on. In a statement Monday, CTV said it had made a business decision to pursue a different direction for the chief news anchor role, citing changing viewer habits. The network announced the same day that national affairs correspondent Omar Sachadina, 39, would step into the role. Lafam's firing drew condemnation from viewers, colleagues in the media industry and prominent figures in Canada, including retired Grammy-winning singer Anne Murray. The Canadian media have continuing to cover the fallout, with reports suggested various factors behind Laflamme's firing, including clashes between the anchor and CTV News head Michael Melling over resources for coverage of the war in Ukraine, among other issues. But one avenue of speculation has touched a nerve among Canadian women left wondering, was it the hair? Laflamme made headlines when she stopped dyeing her hair in 2020. During a special year-in-review broadcast, she told viewers that the pandemic had prevented her from visiting her hairstylist, and she was tired of spraying her roots each day before going on air, according to The Globe and Mail. Right, and women love this because, oh, I identify with her. I'm tired of putting in an effort to look good. I finally said, why bother? I'm going gray, she said. Honestly, if I had known the lockdown could be so liberating on that front, I would have done it a lot sooner. Uh, who wouldn't want to be liberated from making an effort? All right. Uh, who wouldn't want to be liberated from having a go? Who who wouldn't want to be liberated from doing things that aren't fun for you? Like who wouldn't want to be liberated from, you know, doing something for someone else, such as a spouse? All right. You don't think uh, husbands would, would, you know, prefer that their wives look, look attractive rather than simply let themselves go. But, uh, People want to take the lazy way out and they want to say, oh, this is the moral thing. The move resonated with Canadian women who have faced societal pressure to dye their hair. Right, because men don't face societal pressure to hold down jobs. All right. It's the poor women that they face societal pressure to put some effort into their appearance. Okay. Uh, fascinating story here in the New York Times. A dad took photos of his naked toddler for the doctor. Google flagged him as a criminal. Google has an automated tool to detect abusive images of children, but the system can get it wrong and the consequences are serious. So Mark noticed something amiss with his toddler. His son's penis looked swollen, was hurting him. So he grabbed his smartphone, took photos to document the problem so he could track his progression. His wife called a nurse to schedule an emergency consultation for the next morning by video. And the nurse said to send photos so the doctor could review them in advance. Well, I think you know what's going to happen. All right. So Google ends up flagging this. So Google cancels his Gmail account. And uh, Mark had come to rely heavily on Google. He'd synced his appointments with Google Calendar, used a, an Android smartphone. He backed up his videos and photos to the Google Cloud. And... His, his Google account was disabled because of harmful content. There was a severe violation of Google's policies. It might be illegal. And Google also reported him to the police. So 
he filled out a form requesting a review of Google's decision, explained his son's infection, and he discovered the domino effect of Google's rejection. Not only did he lose emails, contact information for friends and colleagues, documentation of his son's first years of life. He had to get a new phone number. He couldn't get uh, the security codes he needed to sign into other internet accounts. He was locked out of much of his digital life. And then there was a police investigation as well. So I actually have sympathy, obviously, for the man, but I also have sympathy for Google, right? And here's the bigger issue. Just because you're doing the right thing, that doesn't end decision-making, right? Obviously, this guy was taking commonsensical steps to try to get help for his his infant's uh, baby penis. And as you go through life, there'll be all sorts of occasions when what you're about to do is absolutely right. But that doesn't end decision-making. You also then have to ask, how will what I'm be doing be perceived and what will be the consequences, right? Just doing something because it's right, right? That's not the end of the story. How will this come across to others? What will be the consequences? How will other people perceive this? So the world doesn't have to bend to you just because you do something that you know is right. right? The world doesn't necessarily have to bend to you and accommodate you. Google has every right to say, we don't want people taking photos of infant penis on our system. And if we come across that, we're going to ban you. So I, I believe that what the men did was absolutely right, but there are going to be consequences even when you're absolutely right, right? Being right is not the end of decision-making, right? The wise men ask, how will other people perceive this? What will be the consequences? How could this be misjudged, right? What will be the negative effects on other entities and other people, right? Obviously, Google doesn't want photos of naked infant boy penis on its system. So I, I get why, why people are so disturbed by, by losing their Google account, but I understand why Google does not want photos of swollen naked boy penis. And so it's just this bigger issue. So many people think that just because what they're doing is right, just because what they're doing is right in their eyes, just because they've thought it through for themselves that this is right, obvious to them, that doesn't end the issue. We always have to, if we're wise, take into consideration the effect of what we're saying, doing, and shooting on other people. How will they perceive it? Do they? Do other people want you know photos of naked boy penis on on their system? Right. Often the answer is no. Right. This is chance. Book about the nineteen sixty four. Before, even though it's like the largest quake in American history, and it was really quickly after that that I came upon this character of Jeannie Chance, who was this radio broadcaster. And I just found this little report she had prepared after the quake where she mentioned in a very self-effacing, you know, kind of um, very dry way, you know, the author of this report. Okay, a bigger issue. Google doesn't owe you anything. Google doesn't owe me anything. All right. Other people don't really owe you anything. And so often I, I, I sense in myself and in others this like sense of entitlement that like YouTube owes me, Google owes me. My boss owes me, my rabbi owes me, my priest owes me, my parents owe me, my siblings owe me, my friends owe me. 
And so other people have to bend to me. Other people have to accommodate me, right? They have all these obligations to me. And the way the world works is the world really doesn't owe you anything, right? You can form relationships where there are, you know, mutual expectations for, for how you behave. But what, what grabs me about this story is th this sense that many people have that, that, you know, other entities and other people owe them all sorts of things that they don't really. And so for me, one, one of, the, one of the, the times that I started to grow up in this world was to let go of my assumption that other people had all these obligations to me, that other entities had all these other obligations to me. I remember when I started blogging, I started blogging on AOL free pages and I was blogging about the porn industry and I was putting up porn banner ads to, to make money from that. And then they shut down uh, my account and I managed to talk my way back in and, but I kept doing the same thing and people telling me, you're just going to get banned. Your account's going to get banned. And, and they were right. And I was, I was all convinced, ah, oh, this is like really solid academic, you know, solid journalistic uh, material. They, they shouldn't be banning me, but AOL didn't owe me, right? AOL didn't have to bend to accommodate me. Google doesn't have to bend to accommodate your photos of naked infant boy penis. Or is a radio broadcaster who stayed on duty at her station for 59 hours after the quake and that her family recorded some of the broadcasts. And then, you know, my like story uh, reporter sense was tingling because I was like, I got to see where those tapes are. Wow. And uh, Reasonable Responsible has a Reasonable Responsible question. Couldn't Google at least investigate before taking drastic action against individuals? Yes. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if other entities and other individuals investigated before people take drastic action against us? But they didn't owe us that, right? People and corporations have limited resources they don't have, you know, an infinite time to make deliberations. We all tend to make snap decisions on all sorts of things. And so to be effective in life, you really want to minimize opportunities for people to take drastic snap decisions against you. So that's why it's important to, you know, dress decently, conduct yourself decently, try to maintain and develop a good reputation, uh, make friends, be, be a responsible adult. And uh, people will be you know, less likely to take these drastic decisions against you. Wouldn't it be nice, though, if everyone like, did some reasonable and responsible investigation before they make snap decisions about you? But that's not how the world works. Occasionally, people will and entities will. Generally speaking, people won't. You're not worth it enough to them, right? You're not worth taking the time to investigate, right? The way the world works is that we all pretty much tend to make snap decisions on very little evidence and we just don't want to be bothered and most normal people and normal institutions don't want photos of swollen baby boy penis you know on their servers or have anything to do with it and and i understand why you know the, the fathers were so upset and difficult situation but What's useful, convenient, necessary, or moral for you isn't the end of the story, right? What effect do your actions and words have on other people? Recognize in the real world, people and entities and bosses, right, just make snap decisions. Most of the time, people aren't going to do reasonable and responsible investigations. Yeah, you can't just call Google. There's no customer service number.
Google can lock you out of everything with a single algorithmic decision. So if you want an you know, easier life, don't do things that increase the likelihood that Google will lock you out. Right? Just trying to contact Google is practically impossible. All right. What about Jeannie? When you read that little tidbit, we all read so much all day long. We're always scrolling through a million things. Why did you see that little tidbit and think like there, what, what spark did you see in her? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things, some like less embarrassing than others. I mean, one is like, her name is Jeannie Chance. Um, so <laughs> that's pretty cool, right? You're like, cool name. Done yeah. five years by. And the chat says, interesting thing about this story is how much one technology company can F up your life. One technology company, one person can really F up your life because they become so valuable to your life, right? The reason people use Gmail is because it's a pretty awesome service. People use YouTube so much because it's a pretty awesome service. The reason that the loss of, uh, of a friendship was so incredibly painful to me was that they were such a valuable part of my life. I remember I lost a friend about uh, 15 years ago, and it was absolutely wrenching. It was devastating. I wanted to write a novel about the friendship. I walked around with pain from the, the loss of this friendship for, for weeks, months, and years afterward. Right? And, and why was the loss of this friendship so painful to me? Because he, he'd been such a good friend. He'd been such an important part of my life. He had, you know, helped you know, fill the soul hole in my soul. So when he said, here's the feeling in this house, you know, I don't trust you. My kids fear you. My wife hates you. That was devastating because I had such a good friendship with him because he was such a valuable, valuable part, part of my life. So yeah, I was devastated. So it can be devastating when, uh, you know, Gmail, Google, you know, kicks, kicks you off. It's devastating because they, they provide products that can be so you know, incredibly, useful if if you know youtube wasn't so easy and pleasant to use if gmail wasn't so so useful we wouldn't be nearly so devastated at the loss okay i've renewed my subscription to new york review of books and there is an excellent uh, essay here on a book by Isaac Butler called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. So do you know about The Method? So I don't have much of a background in, in acting, but uh, when I moved to Los Angeles at age 27, yeah, I started taking acting classes and learned a bit about The, the Method. All right, so... 1935, Laurence Olivier's performances in Romeo and Juliet, so he would alternate the parts of Romeo and Mercatio, were regarded as ultra-realist, right? These, these were the cutting edge of, of acting, right? Now, 10 years later, in his Shakespeare films, it's clear that uh, Laurence Olivier was a stylized actor. On stage 20 years after that, he was dismissed by many as monstrously mannered. So Laurence Olivier's acting had not changed the temper and taste of the times had. So I was a huge deal in blogging between 1998 on and off until 2007. But that wasn't because I'm inherently an important person. It's because the situation I was in, the stories that I was gathering uh, combined to you know, 
make me, you know, a, a big deal for, for a blogger, right? But uh, I didn't change when after 2007. It's just that the circumstances and situation I was in changed. So Laurence Olivier's acting did not change. The temper and taste of the times change. So the shock of the new has a built-in decay, right? When my blog really started cranking in 1998, it was, it was shocking. I would get emails from people saying, like from a journalism professor, he emailed me and said, you know, I was talking with a friend at the bar tonight and I asked him, have you read Luke Ford? And I got emails from this journalism school in France that said, you know, you're the, you're the new Dan Rather. We want you to come over and, and talk to us. So I was new. I was in Rolling Stone in 1999, like, you know, the hot new thing. The shock of the new has a built-in decay and is in the nature of pioneers to believe that they have finally reached the promised land, the end of the rainbow. That's what I did. I thought I've finally reached the promised land. You know, my inherent genius and wonderfulness is, is finally clear for everybody to see. I'm here in the promised land. I'm at the end of the rainbow. So the supposed influence of the method came to a climax in the 1980s in the work of Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, and Robert De Niro. And then acting started to change again, right? The times, the circumstances, the form and pressure of the times required new heroes, new villains, new representative human beings, and new methods of acting. So Isaac Butler takes this topic very seriously. His subtitle is How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Now, the idea that Lee Strasberg taught the 20th century, how to act, would certainly have come as a surprise to Greta Garbo, Charles Lawton, Mickey Rooney, Agnes Moorhead, Pierre Brasseur, Nikolai Chukasov, Edith Evans, Laurence Olivier, or Anna Magnani. Select a tiny handful of 20th century acting titans that one does see that the more factually precise, one of the dominant approaches to acting in the United States of America for about 25 years is less likely to sell copies. So... The book overpromises, tries to make you know something much more dramatic than is true. And that's what like Tucker Carlson does really well. He makes a really dramatic, compelling show, but it's at the price of telling the truth. So on the whole, the book is much more sober than the subtitle threatens, though as he proceeds, the author seems increasingly impelled to justify it. Yeah, that's when we we say things that we don't believe. And then we start feeling increasingly compelled to try to justify the things that we said that we don't believe. So we're told that when Stanford, Stanford Meisner died, the acting teacher, America entered a new era, one in which none of the original method teachers remained. And the New York Review of Books concludes, I suspect that America took the news pretty calmly. And then uh, interesting actor artist, writer, John Lurie. Have you heard of John Lurie? He was a huge deal in Manhattan. Did uh, Luke seriously cut away from Tucker because criticism of Fauci was inflammatory? No, I cut away from Tucker because his criticisms were really weak. There are strong criticisms to make of Tony Fauci. Tucker wasn't making them. Tucker was just playing to the prejudices of, of his audience and just dishing out the crap. All right. And that's what makes a successful pundit. You tell an audience what it wants to hear. The following rant about bureaucrats going to bureaucrat was an absolute trash take. Okay. Okay. If that's a trash take, tell me about the successful truth tellers who've run giant bureaucracies and where they put telling the truth 
ahead of their career ambitions. Like, just regale me with those stories. Oh, that's right. There aren't any, right? If you're going to become a bureaucrat, if you're going to run a large federal government agency, telling the truth cannot be your number one priority. So if Tony Fauci wasn't in that position, someone else with similar proclivities would be. Why did John Lurie disappear? Right, this is a Tad Friend writing in the New Yorker, August 9, 2010. Celebrity is the power to rivet attention. Right, Like a Kevin Michael Grace, he has this inherent power to rivet attention. And uh, John Lurie realized that his riveting faculties had lapsed. That's a very sad time when you, when like me, I've had a small taste of celebrity. I've had a small taste of that power to rivet attention. And then I realized that my riveting faculties have lapsed. So John Lurie tells his friend Perry, when I went into my house, I was famous. I came out six years later and nobody knows who I am. So in essence, he's saying, I am Rip Van Winkle returned, but unknown. So John Lurie goes off to Palm Springs and he's disappointed. He doesn't get recognized there. He buttonholes strangers at the local Starbucks for a little conversation. So John Lurie was a big deal in, I think, the Lower East Side of Manhattan for part of the 1990s. But in Palm Springs, nobody cared. And so he complained, these problems I have now wouldn't be happening if I were more famous, if I were Tom Cruise famous, because I'd be insulated. And it wouldn't be happening at all if I were less famous. Somehow I got it just exactly wrong. So John Lurie becomes stalked by his former friend, John Perry. And they just go into this enormous feud against each other. So the two Johns know each other so well, their emotional strengths and weaknesses, that it's like spy versus spy, that mad cartoon about equally matched belligerents. It's almost like fighting with yourself. So John Lurie requested help from hired advisors and from friends, and the more he requested help against his ex-friend stalker John Perry, the more this kept boomeranging which would stimulate his suspicion that human beings suck. He'd been so generous with his friends, he'd loaned them money, he'd bought them houses. Where were they now? There were 60 people at my 50th birthday party in 2002, and only five are still in my life. It was all too much for my friends. They started to lose interest. It was like Darfur. So when you get into feuds, many of your friends get tired of your feuds at that distance. So a number of John Lurie's friends now felt that John Perry, his stalker, was his default topic and paranoia, his default mode. Yeah, people get tired of complaining. It had reached the point that if I said I saw John Perry in a I Love John Lurie t-shirt, John Lurie would have said, that's because he wants to kill me. So the author, Tad Friend, writes, I drove John Lurie back from Joshua Tree late in the afternoon. He slumped in the front seat, saying that his head was roaring. As the sun slipped behind the little San Bernardino mountains, John Lurie said, illness has a beautiful way of bestowing a glow on you. You notice the way the lights hit the top of the trees. Then he fell silent for 30 miles. As we passed the outskirts of Indio, he said, how do these people end up here? Do they all have stalkers? So the dream of artists is the dream of friends and lovers magnified. That's what I thought. If I just became a famous enough person, I'd just be surrounded by friends and lovers and I could have my pick of just the highest quality people to include in my life. So, I mean, that's the dream of the blogger, the live streamer, the artist, that you will just plant yourself in someone else's head. 
Now, by that standard, John Perry had created a masterpiece with his stalker. So he wrote, John Lurie wrote a friend that uh, Perry had been in every facet of my consciousness for months, every dream, every brushstroke, he's infected my mind. So this protracted duet, this feud between the two Johns became a living performance piece, but neither man was able to see it as art. Curiously, though, the struggle seems to have inspired them both, because artists sometimes require an enemy. So John Lurie's now come out with an autobiography, and that's also written up here in the New York Review of Books in the August 18, 2022 issue. So John Lurie was the breakout star in Jim Jarmusch's breakout independent movie, Stranger Than Paradise, 1984, and the follow-up, Down by Law, 1986. So John Lurie epitomized a flavor that everybody wanted to be around in the mid-1980s. He was a real artist with an outstanding personal style, an offbeat sense of humor, a rebellious streak, making his mark on the world through unconventional channels. I was impressed with how outside the box this promotional stunt was. This is the way I thought. He's figured out how to own the means of production. His image was an indelible one in the 1980s. He was on par with former Saturday Night Live star Pete Davidson today. He was a charmed confectionery Marilyn Monroe, the female of the species, have impure feelings about. He was a respected artist, an emotional porn star. I love that, an em- porn star of the emotions. So he had the baggy suits, the lanky concave frame, the saxophone, the bent nose, the street, and Hollywood credibility. Everything you needed to be a French New Wave star in the 1980s, including the black and white art films. So from 1984 to 1989, everyone in downtown New York wanted to be John Lurie or to sleep with him or to punch him in the face. So John Lurie eventually settles in New York. He sates his hunger for spiritual enlightenment when he shoots heroin for the first time. He finds Nirvana. So his spiritual quest was gone. He'd found it in heroin. But certain Eastern spiritual concepts seem to have burrowed their way into his consciousness. There's no such thing as talent, John Lurie declares. There's only cleaning the mirror. There was a young artist in the East Village, Manhattan, in 1977. He lived off supplemental security income after faking a schizophrenia diagnosis. SSI was how a lot of artists got by in those days, but Lurie had to augment it with a lot of petty crime, dealing part, traveler's check scams. He lived in a government-run railroad apartment for $55 a month. He did wacky performance art pieces with titles like Leukemia. Made avant-garde movies on Super 8 with like-minded friends, dropped acid, hung around the mud club on a nightly basis. He used to practice the sax late at night in the subway station on 14th Street and 1st Avenue. Andy Warhol would be in the front row. It's amazing how fast one becomes arrogance. So that arrogance didn't always advance his career. When record companies came by the dressing room to express interest, the entire band would scream at them to get out. To be thrown into that kind of fame is very unbalancing. It is worse for your chemistry than drugs. You want the attention and you want the adoration. It gives you a buoyancy, but it rarely leads to anything real. Biography. Yeah, six years. Yeah, super cool name. So I'm in at that point. And then, um, yeah, I think there was something. And then I think there's just a thrill to, you know, not that I had no illusions that because I had never heard of this earthquake, it was therefore not a known thing or that there were, it was not documented in any way. But that's exciting that I'm going to learn something new. And then I think it was also, you know, the, when I, it didn't take me long to realize, like, what was she doing on the air that whole time? And a lot of what she was doing was getting messages from people, you know, across Anchorage or across Alaska 
or even around the world saying like, I'm safe or I'm looking for my daughter or people who are separated in the disaster. And to find um, that kind of like, uh, like a node, you know, like a point in this huge story that is, you know, she's literally connecting people and that all these other stories are passing through her. Um, I guess, I don't know that I would have been able to explain that at the time, but I think that's what was exciting about it was that I realized that if I learned about her, I'd be learning about a lot of other stuff too. But mostly the name. <laughs> <laughs> it's too real, John. You gotta uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> make yeah. up a fake story. <laughs> yeah. The glint in her eye. Yeah. And, and, but, so then how do you start? So all these, but all these people are, you know, dead or very old and memories are so bad. And this is just a small town. You're trying to kind of piece it all together. I mean, the book pieces it together so viscerally. And, um, Tell me, oh wait, you just cut out. I did? Yeah. Oh no. Okay. Oh no, oh, Booksmith Benz just went into the, oh, okay, cool. Right. Um, um, you piece it together so viscerally. Tell me about the reporting process. Yeah. How did you actually do this book? Because it, it, it was a lot. I mean, it takes, I just look at that. And I... Okay, this is the book, This Is Chance. And it's about 1964 Anchorage earthquake. That will do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.